You're listening to a live 365. Believe, live, and love. For more information, you can visit our website at alive365.com. Maturity. When you hear the word maturity, what comes to mind? For some of us, maturity brings to mind negative feelings. Maybe we've been acting immaturely and now we regret it. Maybe our parents told us that we're immature. Maybe we feel like we've never measured up. Maybe we never want to grow up. For others, maturity is more positive. We want our kids to grow up. We want our coworkers to be responsible and act maturely. We expect others to act their age. When it comes to our culture, maturity is defined in all kinds of ways. A recent article in the New York Times pointed out that we have a very mixed and confused view of maturity. On one hand, we allow teenagers to drive, racing down a highway at 65 miles an hour at any time of night before they can even see an R-rated movie. We also allow young people to fight in war before they can drink beer, determining the future of our society. In our culture, people debate whether maturity starts at 16, 18, 21, 24, or even 40. No one really knows when does maturity begin. But when it comes to our spirituality, the Bible makes the standards very clear. Maturity is not a matter of age, but of honoring God. Maturity is not for some people, but for everyone. And maturity is not defined by culture, but by the expectations given to us by God. Our passage begins in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. The section continues into chapter 6, and I encourage you to read that. But we're going to start in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. It says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then it continues in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Today we're going to look at spiritual maturity and why it matters. In these verses, the author gives a diagnosis of the problem, a call, a warning, and finally, an encouragement. So we're going to look at those issues so that we can live big, so that we can be who God has called us to be, that we can be mature. We're going to look at the diagnosis, the call, the warning, and the encouragement. First, we see the diagnosis of the problem in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5. The diagnosis is that believers have become dull of hearing, that they have become sluggish. This word is used twice in 5.11 and then again 6.12 to emphasize this point. 
even when we are a Christian for a long time, we can become lazy and deaf. The problem is evident. Some Christians are spiritually immature. Scripture doesn't ignore this problem, but calls our attention to the problem. The problem is a lazy, baby-like approach to our faith. That may be uncomfortable for us to hear, but it's necessary to hear so that we can grow. Because maturity, as we know, begins when we recognize our immaturity. When your parent, teacher, or boss corrects you, it can be uncomfortable. But we need to be corrected for our good so we can grow up. Likewise, this diagnosis in Hebrews can be uncomfortable, but it's for our good. We can't grow as believers until we admit our need for growth. If we think our lives and our churches are okay, that's when we're in trouble. It's essential that we desire to grow as believers or else we remain in our current state. Assessing our own spiritual maturity can be difficult. Maybe you've tried that before. So here are a few tests that have been suggested by others. First, there's the test of the mind. We can ask ourselves, do I trust God and would my thoughts reflect that? Because a mature Christian thinks with purity and hope rather than evil or despair. So there's that test of our minds. Another test is one of action. We can ask ourselves, do I live in obedience to God and follow the way of Jesus? A mature Christian lives in obedience rather than rebellion. A third test is about our relationship We can ask ourselves, do I relate to God in a personal, experiential way? A mature Christian relates to God rather than ignoring him. A fourth test is one of doctrine. Do I know and apply Christ's teachings? A mature Christian embraces truth rather than ignorance or falsehood. These are a few questions that we can ask ourselves as we assess our own spiritual maturity because often it can be so subjective. So we can use those tests to ask ourselves, where are we and are we mature enough? But this passage reminds us of one of the most important tests, our response to God. His righteous word leads us to goodness. And so we can ask ourselves these questions. Do I listen to God? Do I engage with his word? Do I honor what he has said? Do I cherish what I've heard? Do I share this good news with other people? Do I practice and apply God's truth to my life? If our answers are no to some of those questions, then the diagnosis is the same for us as it was for the Hebrews. We need to grow. That's the diagnosis. And most likely, all of us have areas of our lives where we need to grow. Next, we see a call to maturity in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. All of us are called to be mature followers of Jesus Christ. We should leave behind our childish ways and become spiritual adults. Following Jesus means that we don't ignore him, but we try to be like him. We try to emulate who he is and what he's done. Because after all, we call ourselves disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. 
Of course, everything begins with the basics, and some of those basics are listed in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Here's the list. It says that we should repent from dead works and trust in God for our salvation. We should understand how we practice our faith. We practice washings or baptisms to symbolize God's spiritual washing. We practice laying on of hands or praying for others to receive the Holy Spirit. We should not fear death, but hope in the resurrection. And we should not trust in this life, but anticipate God's eternal judgment. Those are the basics that all of us should know. We should know that it's God's grace that saves us, not our works. We should know why we practice baptisms, why we lay on hands, why we shouldn't fear death, and why we should look towards God's judgment. But once we know these basics, we should continue growing. God can't be described in a few sentences, and the Christian life can't be summarized in one minute. Because of that, we should strive forward towards completeness and fullness in Christ, becoming more mature. The picture here is one of movement and progression. Many Christians today have stalled engines. As we know, life is busy. We get caught up in traffic. We wait for situations to change. We anticipate what's ahead, but then we run out of energy. Like a car on the highway, our engines stall and we end up going nowhere. But God calls us to start up our engines and to keep moving forward. We can't stay at location A. We have to move from location A to B to C and to keep moving forward. The wonderful news of Hebrews is that movement is possible. God wants us to grow. God promises to teach us. God offers to help us, and God asks us to move because it's possible. In fact, in Hebrews 6.1, when it says that we should go on to maturity, the Greek word here actually means let us be taken on to maturity. In other words, God is the one who helps us become mature. It is not a matter of our own ingenuity or our intelligence. We surrender to God as he completes the work within us. This again, it's said in verse 3, it says, This we will do if God permits. Again, he makes it possible. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who began a good work within you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's talking about the end, but the principle is the same, that God makes maturity possible. Spiritual maturity isn't intended for some people or just some Christians, but for every believer because it's what God wants of us and it's what God makes happen within us. So we have the diagnosis of the problem. Then we have this call to maturity. The third part of this is that there's a warning, a warning of apostasy. We see this in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6. Let's read those verses together. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it 
bears thorns and thistles. It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This warning in verses 4 through 8 should concern us. If we're not rattled a bit, then we're probably not taking God seriously enough. The warning is that those who fall away or turn from God will not be restored. In other words, those who reject Christ have no basis to repent or to be saved. There's no coming back. Scripture says it's impossible. And those words need to speak for themselves. We shouldn't soften them or talk around them. That's what the word says. This warning brings to mind the Israelites in the wilderness. They were enlightened by the law that was given to them. They tasted the manna that God provided from heaven. They shared in the fellowship of God's spirit. They had fellowship with one another. They tasted the preaching of God's word and they heard his promises. Even still, they fell away from the covenant and died in the wilderness. So for those of us who have heard the message and maybe we've been raised in church, this warning should alarm us. If we've ever been enlightened or tasted or shared, experience God's blessings in one sort or another, we need to take this warning seriously. But God loves us, and because he loves us, this warning is for our good. God doesn't want us to destroy our lives and face his judgment. In fact, this warning means that there's still a possibility for us, that we can come back, that we can repent. God warns us because he loves us. God tells us not to fall away because he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Warnings, as you know, can be a matter of life and death. In our family, we love being silly. We wrestle and we have sword fights and we run around and we talk about all kinds of silly and crazy things. I hope my kids always have a young spirit and keep their humor as they grow up. But then there are other moments where we warn them. When they're crossing the street, for instance, it's not okay for them to just wander into the street aimlessly. They have to be mature for their own good. When they're eating food, it's okay for babies to eat milk because that's all that they can eat. But when they turn a certain age, they have to eat solid food and they have to eat their vegetables and their fruits. If a child only lives on milk, they'll have health issues. They have to be mature. They have to eat what is for their good. In the same way, these warnings in Hebrews should alarm us, but those warnings are for our good. Scripture teaches that we don't lose our salvation, but that those who fall away were never true believers in the first place. This message comes back over and over again in Hebrews. The warning is similar to what we hear in the parable of the sower. Some people hear the message, but it's only temporary. They never truly believe, so they wither away as if nothing ever happened. So the warning here is to persevere because true believers persevere. We should heed this warning in our own lives. The last part is a word of encouragement, and we see this in verses 9 through 12. And this is important because it's a drastic change from what was just said. If we read verses 9 through 12 together, it says this, though we speak in this way, 
Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In this final section, we should be encouraged. The author uses the word beloved to show he cares. The author says he feels sure or convicted of better things. The author encourages the believers that they will, in fact, be saved. In other words, although we need to be warned, and he does so intensely earlier in this section, here he reminds us that there is great hope for us. We can be confident of our salvation because God is fair. The key word here is the four in verse 10. The basis for our confidence is God's justice, not our good works, but it's in God and specifically in his justice. We know that God will be fair when he judges us. God knows those who earnestly work and love for his name because they believe in him and trust in him and want to glorify him. God knows who those people are. And because of that, we can have confidence in our salvation. In these verses, we have incredible news. Even though people fall short of God's glory, even though Christians sometimes act like babies, we can have hope because of God and his justice. In fact, the key to living the big life, the key to living as spiritual adults is to persevere. We should be earnest as we live out our faith. We should continue to work and love for God. We shouldn't give up but continue on. We don't need to remain as spiritual babies, and we shouldn't remain in that state. We can become spiritual adults as God makes that possible. So verse 12 tells us the point of all this. Why did he warn us, and why did he then encourage us right after that, drastically changing his tone? Well, verse 12 tells us the point. So that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators. As we persevere, we will show it with our lives. And our perseverance will lead to the inheritance of God's promises. We may not see results right away. But the big life, the mature life, continues to the end. God has called us to an amazing life. But living a big life requires spiritual maturity. God makes this possible, and he calls us to apply these words in a few ways. First, we need to admit our need for maturity. We can't pretend that we've arrived, that we're perfect. We have to admit that we need to grow. Second, we must listen and apply God's word. We're reminded of the parable of the sower and that we have to take root, that we have to carry on to the end. Third, we need to respond to Christ rather than reject him. And this may seem obvious, but think about why the author of Hebrews says this. 
It's because we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded to continue on to respond to Christ rather than reject him. And fourthly, we need to work and love for God's name. Not for our own name, but for his. That's one of the ways that we show God that we are, in fact, living for him. Our works and our love don't save us in themselves, but they are the natural consequence of a life that trusts in Christ for salvation. Because Christ has worked for our behalf, earning our salvation through his righteousness. And because he has loved us, even when we didn't love him, even when we are sinners. Because Christ has done that for us, in response, we should work and love for God's name. That's an expectation of what it means to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. And so in these verses, we see a diagnosis of the problem that, yes, sometimes we are spiritually immature. Then there's the call to maturity, that we need to grow up, that we can't settle for our immaturity, but we need to keep growing. Third, there's an intense warning about falling away and that true believers don't do that. And lastly, there's a word of encouragement reminding us of the good news that God knows his people and that he is perfectly fair. And because of God's justice, we can be confident that we can be saved because of what he's done in Christ and because he sees us and he knows us. May God help us all as we continue on living the big life, living as spiritual adults for God's glory.